Romans 8, 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Anti-Folly. My name is Sam Connington and I'm joined here today with Ethan Sampson. Um, it's great to be back. Uh, been on kind of a hiatus from the podcast for a bit since uh, late January was the last time we uploaded. And we're almost to the end of February here, so it's been quite a while. That's true. It's true. Not that we've been completely forsaking the podcast. No, but we've had quite a few failed podcasts, shall I say, you know? Yeah, it, it honestly, though, it was a good thing, I think, to mm-hmm. revamp and to try to be better. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. A lot of process, new way of doing things, new structure. Obviously, there's a whole lot, whole new formatting. So, so just a lot of good changes that happened while it was gone. Obviously, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess <laughs> it's even supposed. To, it's important to say now, just like, it's been a while since you've been back, but it it's good to have you back. It's good to be here in the podcast room. So great to be back, and uh, just hopeful that, um, yeah, that we can just continue to grow and be better. I mean, that's a big goal mm-hmm. for us. Honestly, is just getting better and growing um yes, so this sure. has definitely been learning we've definitely been learning a lot even if we haven't been posting anything oh, we've yeah. been learning a lot so yeah, learning a ton um, a lot of good conversations off the off the pod as they yeah. say these days you know that's facts um just kind of get things out of the way before we get started here um we have an email now so we've had now two individuals two. email us uh, one of them is directly in our friend group and could have just walked into our room and asked the question, but it counts as an email. So Facts. if you want to be that person, go ahead and email us at uh, anti-folly podcast, all lowercase, no hyphen, no nothing, just all lowercase at gmail.com. And also Instagram. Um, I've been working on getting some more posts up. Going to hopefully have some stuff out, you know, tonight before this is even uploaded, post it on Instagram. So why don't you go give that a check out? It's uh, anti-folly it's um all lowercase as well, and there is a hy- there's a hyphen anti dash folly, whatever it Boom. is. So check it out on Instagram. Um, we'll put it in the description I think for this episode. So make sure you check that out. Totally, totally, yeah, yeah. So I think um you and me have had a lot of great conversations just about your trip. Mm-hmm. So I think it, that's what we're going to be diving into some things around that that have really come up and we've had continued conversations on. So for anyone listening, just tell us, um, where did you go over this January term? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I had the, the blessing to travel and study abroad over in Spain and France over January. So I left on the third, uh, flew to Paris, spent 10 hours at Charles de Gaulle airport and then flew to Madrid and got there at like 10 o'clock at night. And then left at like 8 a.m. the next morning on a trip from Madrid, about an hour and a half to Toledo. So really busy, busy time. But I spent a while in um, Toledo in that part is called Sevilla-La Mancha. Um, 
kind of on Castile capital area. Got to visit Madrid, see the palace, a bunch of cool stuff there. Spent time in Toledo, got to see the Toledo Cathedral. Then made my way down south to Sevilla in Andalusia, and then traveled up towards Cordoba, also in Andalusia, and made my way to Barcelona. Barcelona to Carcassonne to Toulouse, and then from Toulouse to Paris. So I was there for about three weeks, and I've never been to either country, and it was just it was just a really great experience to, you know, obviously be somewhere where they don't speak English. I'm completely out of mm. the Anglosphere. It's like I was walking around Madrid. Uh, I was there for like, me and my roommate, we like sped run it in like six hours, just walked the whole place. Went to the U.S. <laughs> Embassy, some pretty sick stuff. Um, it was interesting walking around there in the mindset. It's like, this is like the London of the Spanish-speaking world. And like you would sure. be walking around, you'd see like Chilean restaurants, Colombian restaurants, um you know, Mexican restaurants, all of these different Spanish countries. And it was strange because it's like, I'm so used to being in either like in the Anglosphere, but I'm in like the Spanish sphere, you know, whatever the Mm. word is for that, which is super interesting. And the same thing in France, France, you know, all of their colonies, you could see the wide culture. So it was, it was like, you're, I'm totally in like a different world and it was kind of cool. Dang. No, that's super cool. That's super cool. I know that you had a good time. I think, I mean, everyone that I've heard that went on, it had a really, really great time. Um, yeah, I mean, just what were some of, how did you feel when you came back? What was some of those those thoughts that you had coming back? Um, just from your experiences experiences. There. Um, I guess to like, you know, underpin it a little bit more, Um, the trip itself was focused, obviously I wasn't just on vacation, so I was studying. Yeah. Um, it's, it was medieval worlds is what it was called. So we're focusing on medieval philosophy, religion, and politics and history. So especially in Spain, we learned a lot about the caliphates and it's like Al-Andalus Caliphate, the Cordoban Caliphate, all these various caliphates. What are caliphates, caliphates, your Um, brother? Caliphates are the Islamic, you know, by the Quranic beliefs, the the Islamic caliph, the leader of these group of Muslims take over these different regions and areas and they establish a kingdom in which Sharia law reigns supreme over the land. So... This Spain, obviously, famously was taken over about half, like well over half of Spain, except for the northern Christian kingdoms, was controlled by Muslims. So okay. it was super fascinating because Spain, obviously, you when you think of Spain, you're like Western, very Catholic, very conservative. It's, you know, Spain. But for about like over 400 years or something like that, it was Muslim dominated. And at one point, at one point it was like, one of the centers of the Islamic world. And there were scientists that were based out of there, philosophers, all these Islamic legends, really, that were coming out of these Spanish places with Spanish-sounding names and all of this stuff. Hmm. So there's really this bleeding of, like, Catholicism and Islam just smacked together in these places. Like, uh, one of my, f- my favorite things to talk about is, so when we were in Cordoba, which was one of the capitals of one of the caliphates, and beautiful city and they're famous for the mesquito which is spanish for mosque and oh that's not what i was thinking i know you're thinking of like a a mosquito you know mosquito mosquito um okay anyways so you 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 go there and it's this grand it's currently a cathedral but it's, it's this beautiful mosque with all these beautiful pillars and just red bricks and it's just it's beautiful it's so the architecture is absolutely astounding but you walk in and you look to your right, and there's this like 
acrylic glass flooring and you can walk over and there's this little sign that says Visigothic church ruins. And you look down mm. there and then you can see these beautiful um, sort of like pallets on the ground of these sort of like stone images of the icons from like the Visigothic Aryan church, which was a her- heretical group. But so you have that. And then, yeah. then obviously you're in a mosque. So then a mosque is on top of that Visigothic church. Because they and then came you, in and conquered. Yeah, the Muslims came in and conquered the Visigothic Empire that ruled in Spain after the fall of the Roman Empire. So okay. just a quick little history. Spain, not always Spain. It was barbarians ruled it for a period of time. Then the Romans conquered it, and it became a part of the Roman Empire. Roman Empire falls, and this group called the Visigoths takes over uh, a very significant portion of like southern France all the way down to Spain. And they rule over it, and they adopt Christianity, or at least a sect of Christianity in some remnant. And they built all these churches and all of these things and exercise control. And then they fell to the Muslims. And then the Muslims eventually fall to the Catholic monarchs who you'd commit the Reconquista of Spain, where they, they reconquest and reconquer all of this land that was previously held by, you know, the Romans and the Western Christians. Visigoths. So mm. you walk in there, and then the, the Muslims build the mosque, and then now it's a cathedral. So there's like this mm. this little section. You're surrounded by the pillars of a traditional mosque, and there's all of these like images of like Islamic art and things like that. And then you turn down one section, and there's like a chapel, like basically mm. just a chapel. Yeah. And you have like the nave and all of this like very Catholic stuff, and it's a beautiful sanctuary. But it really just shows how the society is really just built upon various religious ideologies just conquering each other mm. and being used, you know. And it, it, it's interesting. Another cool thing is in that specific mosque, the guy who, one of the guys who was a caliph, famously went and he fought Christians in the North Kingdom. And he would take the bell towers when he would raid these villages and mm. kingdoms. And from the Christian bell towers, he would take the bells and then he smelted them down and used them to build lamps. So the lamps that are currently hanging in the mosquito, these beautiful, like, well, just well-constructed lamps are literally a political statement of his triumph wow. over the Christian kingdoms, which is just fascinating. Yeah. So with all of that kind of super brief kind of backline, background, um, I, I, I got to learn a ton about ideologies and heresies, early Christian heresies, as well as medieval Christian heresies. And for me, the big takeaway was Roman Catholicism and what I learned about Roman Catholicism. Yeah. I was surrounded by it. I think there was one, there was only one reformed church I could find in all of Spain. And fortunately I could not visit it. So that the options were very slim on Sundays. I'll just put it that way. It was basically Catholic church or no church. So no church. So yeah, no church. But yeah, well, one, one point while you were talking, I just thought of was, I think that we don't see this in America as much. Mm -hmm. Um, but that idea of the, I mean, really the folly of, of, of human kingdoms, Mm -hmm. the fact that like kingdoms rise and fall, but Christ is over all of this, I think is really especially even right now with things going on in Ukraine and stuff, just to know that 
just to like that that just made me think of that you mm-hmm. know we don't maybe we don't i wouldn't appreciate that that as much as you know if i lived in europe to see oh yeah. this kingdom was here and then they fell and then this kingdom and then this kingdom and all those things they're right in your face more yeah. so than here so that's super interesting yeah you it's it's very humbling in the sense that like like you you can't walk anywhere in in these cities especially if you live in the old city and not realize how much more came before you like in America, I don't get that luxury. Like I go home to the suburbs and I'm like literally the first person who's ever lived on this street. It's a brand new suburb. Yeah. So it's like, I don't have that. And that I feel like Americans are very ignorant, very, very arrogant. We're also ignorant, um, arrogant in that regard. Cause we don't always view just the, the vast history that exists, you know? And not that Europeans aren't arrogant. I, as a soccer fan, I would be the first <laughs> to point out, you know, Euro snobs, they love to hate on Americans. Totally. Um, but it's really humbling to walk down the streets and realize how much history exists before you. And even like in a religious setting, if you like, like a fun little example, like I was, my previous class, we talked a lot about like Christian nationalism in America and whatever that is, which is very hard to define. Um, and people are always ratting on that. They're like, oh, these evangelicals, you know, they're worshiping Trump and all this stuff. And then I go to Spain and I walk into the Sevilla Cathedral and there's literally a freaking statue of Christopher Columbus and he's buried <laughs> there. And then there's this giant cathedral and nothing else in the city can be taller than the cathedral that was built mm. like a thousand years ago. And I'm just like, hmm, I'm really glad I live in America because we don't have to deal with that kind of crap, you know? So I guess for me, one of my big takeaways, it definitely was Roman Catholicism, but it was also this idea of like an ideological state that uses religion to co-ox control over people and and different things. Yeah. Well, I think that that really kind of brings brings up this kind of, I think, thesis that you came out with, Mm -hmm. which was really that, um, I don't want to say it wrong, but essentially trying to track the history of Mm -hmm the Roman church back to of the Roman Catholic church back to Rome. Yeah. And the ways that that has always been a political sort of institution Yeah, and has been powered by that in a lot of ways in its yeah. doctrines and things like that. Yeah. If you want to talk about that a bit. Yeah. That was, that was something that hit me on, on almost and not just an intellectual um, way, but like also an emotional way because before I get to the thesis, I'll just underlay how I got to it. Yeah, that's um, important, yeah. Uh, my first cathedral I went into, we took a day trip from Toledo to Cuenca, which is on east, I'll just say far east side of Madrid. No one knows where that is. It's fine. Yeah, it's somewhere Beautiful in city, Europe. Somewhere in Spain. So I'm tracking. So we're going in this cathedral, and it's the first cathedral I've gone in on the trip. And I'm with all of my classmates, with my professors, and I'm... I'm, I'm like the only reformed person on the trip. I'll just put it that way. There's Anglicans on the trip. There's, as far as I know, people that just aren't religious, evangelicals, um, lots of Arminians, the whole shebang. Um, <laughs> I'm walking through the cathedral and I am really awoken to like my reformed and in my Protestant roots. I'm walking into this cathedral and there's gold bars separating the clergy mm-hmm. from the from the rest of the congregation and just these massive portraits, paintings, these shrines to Mary, just this extravagant stonework. I walk downstairs, there's all these icons of Christ and different ethnicities and 
then there's this there's this room that has all of the bishops in it and lined up and it's just I'm surrounded by all of this and as I've been learning on the trip it's about all the suffering that's occurred during this time period and then I see this cathedral that that's built up around this period mm. and for me really it's almost a spit in the face to look especially walking past the, the barred clergy to see how the aristocracy how the elites you know inside of this really egalitarian religion of Christianity ideologically, how in the medieval period it was it was cut off. There's a distinct barrier between these people that were essentially more holy than you, and it had no biblical backing. And for me, I felt that I I, saw, I found people on, on my trip and people around me that were like awe and, and beauty of the magistracy and just the beauty of the churches. Totally. And I couldn't help but look at that and just see a corruption of, of what classical Christianity truly is. So as I have taken some Roman civilization courses and I've done a lot of research on that and just the parallels between the Roman civil religion, which was the mythological religion of Rome and how it was co-oxed by the Roman emperors and the Senate to perpetuate their political ends, I couldn't help but notice that there were some very startling parallels between that and Roman Catholicism. And I guess a really obvious one that Protestants love to point out is what they call the Pope, the Pontifex. The Pontiff, you know. The Pontifex Maximus was the head priest of the Roman religion, the Roman civil religion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he was originally separate. He was just a part of the elites. And then eventually, starting with Augustus, Augustus turned it into a role that was given to the emperor. So the emperor not only had complete authority over the empire and was this tyrannical king, but he also had yeah. the religious title, the highest religious title in all of the entire empire. And that centralization of control is something that you see very paramount in the early success of the institutionalized Roman Catholic Church. So long story short, and I'll get into it more, my thesis is essentially that Roman Catholicism is a rebirth and extension of the Roman civil religion. It's, there's no mistake that it's headquartered in Rome. There's no mistake that it's been used throughout Europe to the present day in order to legitimize and maintain the present civil authority. Mm. And if even like going to the more evangelical leanings of the present day Catholic academics, Catholic social doctrine is very much rooted you know the the very the more liberal branch of catholic political theory is rooted in maintaining order and adherence to what they view as a potentially just magistrate yeah so it's very much based around maintaining order and maintaining the present powers um so yeah <laughs> yeah no that's super good and i think yeah i think that there's maybe another thing in history that maybe speaks to this, mm -hmm. which is that not everybody got down with the Roman Catholic no. Church. Not everybody was down with that. Yeah. And so you see this really interesting thing where these these there's people that are like, I am, you know, there the only church is the Roman Catholic Church. That's the only place I can go. But this doesn't sit right with me. No. But I also don't these people that we're talking about, they don't have access to scripture. Mm -hmm. And I think we forget that, you know, 
where we live. We're so blessed, especially in America here. There's so many different great translations of the Bible. I can literally pull it up for free on multiple websites, on my computer, on my phone. You know, Bibles are super cheap, all that stuff. You can go on Facebook Marketplace and literally get a free Bible (laughs) sent to you by some random person. Exactly. So that that was not the circumstance for Mm -hmm. these people. But I know that um, that was part of your guys your trip. I don't even I don't even want to name them because I'm gonna screw it up. Um, but if you want to kind of talk about yeah. talk about them and kind of you know learning about them, yeah, and also like, yeah, yeah. I don't want to. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to set you. You take it. <laughs> I got it. I got it. <laughs> yeah. I'll try not to take over too much. No, um, bro, you're good. So yeah, as I you know, pondered and like really took all of that in. And one thing that struck me was that I would mention this to some of my professors and and they kind of just, they didn't agree with me, but they kind of were like, they can't dispute what I said. You know, they're like, yeah, Sam, there's a ton of contrasts. And they're like, yeah, they suppress information, all of that stuff. So it's pretty clear that the similarities between Roman Catholicism and the Roman civil religion of the Roman empire. Um, yeah, what you believe you were trying to reference was the Waldensians and the Cathars. So the Waldensians were a group of people following a guy named Walden, I think. He was a Probably. French or Italian priest who became distraught with um, what was at the time the medieval corruption within the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Um, kind of think about what's going on in the medieval period. There's a lot of instability. Um a lot of famine, there's literal plagues, and huge wealth inequality and disparities. And so this priest, is he has access to these documents, and he's, re- and he's seeing that the church is living in this immense wealth. The bishops are benefiting hugely from political alliances and all of these things. The pope is, the papal states, all of these things, and it's just massive excess. And he, the way I like to frame it is he, he looks at, the, the bountiful, extravagant cathedral and the, the gold bars separating the clergy from the people and his emotional re- reaction to that in the medieval period is complete and total egalitarian and to go about establishing a commune in Rome, essentially creating this kind of egalitarian socialist state that only lasted like a month, but... What do you that mean by a like lot. egalitarian social? Like His, we've, you've been saying yeah. you're egalitarian a yeah. lot. If you just wanna yeah, so egalitarian. So the idea that um, we're all equal before Christ, I guess in this context. But yes. when I'm saying egalitarian for Waldensians, he takes it to the extreme where there is no hierarchy. Okay. Yeah. Sure. There are no bishops. There are no sure. priests. We're all just one. Yeah. Which is obviously not biblical. There is some structure to the church that that the Bible calls us to. But you have to understand that he didn't necessarily have access to that information. And what he's reacting to is is a very righteous frustration with the Catholic Church. Totally. With, you know, you think about it, you're a priest, you're, you're, you're actively engaging with the people that are the lowest of the low in society and suffering. At least this guy was. Most of the priests probably weren't. Um, and he looks to the wealth of the church and all the corruption and abuses. And his reaction is, this is not Christianity. This is, doesn't make sense. And I guess for me, when I looked at these medieval heretics, so this guy, obviously a heretic. Um, another example, the Cathars. The Cathars were, they were vegetarians, they were pacifists. They believed that 
they believed in no church hierarchy. They believed that water was evil. They were dualists. They believed that. So dualism, they believed there's a good God and a bad God, essentially, that one that God created all these things that are good and everything else was created by something else that am, mm-hmm. basically. I don't know. Do you want to summarize dualism a little bit better for me? No, yeah, that's exactly. I mean, there's definitely lots of different views of dualism. Yeah, for um, sure. But essentially what it is is that there are these two forces. Mm-hmm whatever those forces are in there, there's one good and one evil and they're constantly in, in battle and in flux. And so that's how you explain why there's evil. And that's mm-hmm. how you explain, you know, if something bad happens to you, well, it's because the it's bad, because, yeah. the bad force is winning. God and, can't possibly yeah. be sovereign over all aspects, which we laugh at from the modern perspective, but it's like, there's a reason why dualism was really pro- prominent within medieval society was because they didn't have access to these documents. And you can blame it on lack of printing press, but you could also maybe blame it on the fact that the people that had access to it weren't preaching from it. Yeah. That's just straight up. That's what happened. And so the Cathars, obviously, they believed in all these wacky things. Like, I always like to share this fun fact. Instead of baptism, water was impure, so they decided that baptism would be a laying of hands by people they called perfects. And these perfects didn't sin at all in their life. And they were, they were essentially mm-hmm. acted as the, the top. They had no hierarchy, but they were the best people. They were perfect. So obviously they had some sort of weight above just the rather regular Cathars. And they believed they couldn't go to heaven without baptism. So most people would end up just being, quote, baptized on their deathbed with the laying of the hands by the perfects. Obvious heretics. You know, we should dismiss them. There's probably a lot of Cathars burning in hell. You know, just going to put that out there. Be completely transparent. With that said, though, like the Waldensians, it makes sense why they would have that reaction. Because if you think Cathars were alive in a medieval period and they were seeing the abuses by, in this case, they were in southeast France, they were watching very literally the, the corruptions of the early Frankic, Frankish kingdom and the corruptions of the Pope. And their response to it was, let's be complete egalitarians, Wealth is bad. Material, they were anti-materialists to the point where any material is bad. They would walk into the most reformed, reformed church ever, and they would walk in and be like, this is an abomination to God. It's too nice in there. You should not be sitting on that. <laughs> you know, they walk into Redeeming sure. Cross. They're like, there's cushions right there. Off with it. You guys totally. are heretics. Yeah. And that's ridiculous, and it's heretical, and it's horrible. And there's no excuse for that, but you have to understand where they were. They didn't have access to the Bible. They were actively being oppressed. Yeah. And they saw something that was wrong, and that was their genuine reaction. And I guess to put it more succinctly, it's it's the ideological fight that occurred between the Cathars and the medieval civil religion that I believe is headed in Rome, being the Catholic Church. It, it's a reflection of the materialism from the materialisms of the vast, extravagant cathedrals throughout Europe, and it often arg- it often garnered reactions of awe from individuals who had no alternative ideology. So obviously there were peasants who looked at the cathedrals and they're like, wow, I want to be really good Catholic today. But then there were people that didn't think that. And those people were these heretics that ultimately ended up being burned at the stake. And mm. I think we that should... were pacifists. They were pacifists too. Yeah. Um, just a straight up genocide actually occurred by the guy named St. Louis. Um, might ring a bell. St. Louis, Missouri is named after him. Mm. King Louis. Don't remember which list. One of the, one of the earliest ones because medieval period. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've talked about this. I feel like I've said it more succinctly before, but 
it's easy from the modern mind to look at these medieval heretics and be like, wow, they're just a bunch of wackos. But mm. it makes sense why they would react like that given the circumstances. And I think that's important to note. And, and yeah. Yeah. No, totally. And um, one thing that this is a story I've heard you tell a few times now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll, let me, I'll, I'll tell it and love to hear some more thoughts on it. Mm-hmm. And obviously if I misrepresent the story, then yeah. obviously correct me. Essentially, you're talking about how uh, one of the cathedrals that you that you guys went to, they're, they're giving a tour, and the tour guide basically offhand, um, you know, as a showing off this beautiful ornate cathedral, which all of them, I'm sure, were, um, mm-hmm. mentions how, and I don't want to, I, I guess, in my view, it's basically just stealing money from people, but yeah, but this idea, this doctrine of indulgences and mm. the church and giving money to the church to wipe away sins. Mm. And that was used to build, I mean, all of these <clears throat> cathedrals to commission things. Yeah. And, um, we've had conversations with, with Catholic friends and stuff. And, um, is it still going on? Is it not? That's kind of, Depends it's, who you ask. Yeah, maybe. it depends on the church and um, yeah. and those types of things. But it definitely was going on then. Definitely mm-hmm. was going on, and definitely speaks to the corruption of the medieval Roman Catholic Church at mm-hmm. the very least. Yeah, at the very least. Um, and that that one just makes me sick because mm-hmm. the you know just this ornate gold, this unnecessary you know extravagance in this building. And then on the outside, you have all of these people suffering and poor, yeah, thinking that they have to give this money, or they need to give this money for a relative that's passed, and um, all of these things that really don't do anything, and not even they don't do anything, but they lead people astray, mm. because we love to say it, but it's faith in Christ alone. Mm. It's faith in Christ alone that's going to take away your sins. Giving money to a church is not going to do anything. Yes, God loves a cheerful giver. He does. And we should do, and good works should come out of our faith. But we should not be demanded to give money to someone so that our sins would be wiped away. That's no, really... That's not biblical at all. Totally. Just straight up. And so, I mean, I think you can see why, in my mind, you can see why the Cath- Cathars... Cathars, yeah. Why the Cathars and other groups would be like, this is... Not good. I don't know what it is. They'd be, I mean, they're probably like, I don't know what it is, but this is not it. Mm-hmm. I don't like this. You know? It's yeah. Just, I mean, yeah. it makes sense. Um, yeah. Um, I guess to touch on that, uh, when when I walked into the Toledo Cathedral, which they're one of the arch, it's one of the dioceses where the headquarters of that diocese is in Castilla-La Mancha. Um, we walked in there and one of the bishops, or at least one of the archbishops or whatever, I'm not a Catholic, so sorry if I offended anyone. He comes in in his, like, fancy Cadillac. Cadillac Looks like it was, like, honestly, like a 2018 Cadillac. Tinted wi- tinted windows. He has his own, like, parade, like, or, like, motorcade of people. And he gets out with security in this, like, big fancy robe, and then he walks in. And there's, like, literally a homeless guy, like, not even 100 feet away, just mm. sitting outside of this massive cathedral. And then he just walks in, and I'm just like, "How could? How do you not want to punch this guy in the face? 
there's no biblical precedent for any of this extravagance. And the fact that, like, he's using political authority and remnants of a medieval civil religion to to gain this wealth and all of these things just is such a slap in the face to anything that resembles an ideological sense of Christianity, something that re- something that re- ref- ref- something that reflects a dogmatic understanding of the Bible and of the life of Jesus Christ. Um, yeah. So what you were talking specifically was technically it was a basilica, not not a cathedral. My apologies, brother. Yes. Yeah. Um, also, basilica. This isn't necessarily a jab at the Roman Catholics. The early church did this, but basilica was a type of building in the Roman for the Roman religious practices. And obviously, some true churches utilize the same buildings. But funny that the Catholics decided to stick with the name. You know, maybe says something about the roots of Catholicism. Um, mm. <laughs> yeah. So basically, there's a basilica, a famous one in Barcelona called La Sagrada Familia. Still under construction. Beautiful, beautiful cathedral. Um, one of I, one of my highlights of my trip. It's just extravagant. But I'm walking in. I obviously have that reformed strain, and I'm like, well, I've been reading my Bible, and this doesn't reflect the Bible a lot. And I'm walking in. The tour guide's like, oh, we've been funding this through, you know, donations to cleanse people of their sins. And I'm like, yo, didn't we? Uh, didn't we have a reformation about this? It's just we like did. we did. We yeah. literally did. And it's like for people to to still believe in those sort of activities and for it for it to have even occurred that um, you know, indulgences that you, you would donate money to this political institution in return you would be cleansed of your sins. That's that's not biblical. There's nowhere in the Bible that says you have to donate money to cleanse you of your sins. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And the promise that donating money to build a, an extravagant cathedral or basilica somehow grants you salvation in any in any way, shape, or form is just completely unbiblical and terrible. So I'm walking into this cathedral, and that's right before I walk inside, and I'm still blown away, but it's like there's this constant dilemma I'm experiencing. It's like this is arch- architectural beauty, but it's also an abomination to God, and it's sin. And it's terrible. And the more I learned about it on the trip, I I could definitely see why in the 30s, please don't, FBI, if you're listening to this, I won't actually follow through with this. Um, In the 30s, I could totally see myself fighting with the anarchists in Barcelona and throwing a brick through a cathedral wall. Like, to have that understanding of how the state uses the Catholic Church to the present day in Europe to oppress people and how how much the cathedral represents the power of the state at the most intimate level between you, an individual, and religion. As an anarchist, or even as a libertarian, or someone that cares about rights, I would totally be compelled to do that. And I, I honestly, I, I would do that if I was around at that time period. Um, mm. So that's, it's really hard because... I feel like as as Protestants, we often have this idea. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church to deep it predates our Protestant ideology, and in a sense, that's true. But it's also just couldn't be further from the truth. Um, there's no connection between the early bishops of Rome and the Pope. Straight up, like the things that Peter taught and and 
and preached and, and said, those things are not the same as what Pope Francis says today, as what Pope Urban III said, you know, during the Cathar Crusades and genocides. Yeah. And I think we need to acknowledge the historical fact that at some point there was a flip. And also we have to understand that when Peter established the, the Bishop of Rome, he never established something called the Bishop of Rome. <laughs> like there wasn't this rigid institutionalized structure of a of a church which with multiple parishes and cathedrals and, and a diocese system with archbishops and all of this. Th- that didn't exist. He was there preaching and he set up a church. And actually most secular historians agree that the claim by the Catholic Church that Peter was the first pope is complete bogus because there's no there's no clean lineage at all that exists. And especially when you talk about like the early church fathers, like there were literally quote early popes that were beefing with Chrysostom. Chrysostom? How do you say yeah. it? Yeah. John Chrysostom. Chrysostom and Origen and all of these early church fathers were just straight up beefing with these popes. And a lot of the practices and views of of quote the early Catholic Church that the Catholic Church claims their lineage lineage to is so different from what they currently practice or even practice like 300 years after like the ideas of indulgences like the ideas of the worship of Mary like the ideas that I don't know there's other books to the Bible than the one that was compiled by Luther like it's 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 something that you can't just say because we were the first people there and because we go to the same building, we're therefore the same group of people because you're not. And I think we need to acknowledge that Protestantism is really a return. You know, don't think about the Renaissance, you know, re- returning to the glory days of the, of the Roman Empire. Protestantism is really, and this is how a lot of the early reformers viewed it, it's a, it's a return to true Christianity. Sola Dea Gloria, Sola Scriptura, by faith alone, by by grace alone, by Christ alone, all of these things, we're returning to that. And that's not to say there's this dark age with Catholicism, because I know that's something that even you kind of talked about. It's like, they were good Catholics, you know, Thomas Aquinas. He was obviously a, an amazing, amazing Catholic. He had a lot of terrible, disgusting views about, um, about certain aspects the Bible. I don't want to get into it, but he had yeah, certain I mean, he had certain falls. But like, I believe I'm going to see him in paradise. I don't think just because he's a Catholic, quote unquote. But when you think about like the Universal Church, which isn't the Catholic Church, the Universal Church is the Universal Church. It existed throughout this dark period, and yeah, I think. I mean, what do you think? No, that's no, that's exactly what I I think. It's important to stress that because. I was saying this to you. Mm-hmm. The Mor- Mormons will come to Christians and say, "Oh, you know, well, you know, from whatever point, the church completely fell away." And so Joseph Smith is bringing back. He's bringing back, mm-hmm. you know, true faith. And he's at, you know, there's all these other things that he's recording. You know, the, another testament of Jesus Christ. These things. Yeah. But we don't believe that. I we don't believe that Christ is going to fail in his mission when he no. sends. The disciples on the Great Commission, he says, in Matthew 28, he says, um, all power and dominion have been given 
given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Mm. So he's not going to fail in that mission, and he hasn't. And so I believe that we can trace the, the gospel, believers of the gospel, all the way back through through history, back to the early church fathers. And I think that's another thing that um, a lot of Protestants just give up mm-hmm. is the early church, the fight for the early, early church yeah. fathers because... It's complicated. It's really complicated. It gets totally complicated, yeah. and I've literally read none of their work, and I want to, and it's out there. It's really easy. You can find it on the internet. And, yeah, they have conflicting views, and they're working it out, and they're not... It's not scripture. It's the early church... For a reason. Like, we're, exactly. we're still figuring stuff out. Exactly. But it isn't a, there is no, it's not this, you know, we just assume, oh, everyone was just Catholic. Everyone was just Roman Catholic. And, you know, it wasn't until Luther, Luther changed. He changed no. these things. It's like, no, this was not a revolution. This was a reformation. Mm. And so, mm. and so the, He's calling us, he's calling back when people don't know that, a lot of people don't know this either. I didn't know this. Martin Luther wasn't trying to create another church. He was trying to reform the church that he was in. He was a part of the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, this is wrong, this is wrong. They're very clear, even within Catholic you know, doctrine, there's people that are, at the time of Martin Luther, that are holding multiple offices. You know, mm-hmm. they're working this job and working that job within the church. There's all kinds of really just not good stuff. And so that's why he, you know, pinned the 95 theses, penned the 95 theses and nailed it to the door. Um, Mm. And I think there's a lot of stuff that we can get into about, um, yeah, talking about the, you know, you know, this apostolic authority and how they believe it's traced from Peter on and those types of things. But I think it really does come down to the real the real differences between being sola scriptura and 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 tradition traditional sola tradition yeah <laughs> however you want to however you want to uh, say it <laughs> and I I think that's maybe a bit of a contentious I don't think all Catholics would just say oh I'm tradition alone that would be um, I'd recognize that that's probably an offensive thing in the same way I know you said um, worship Mary they don't believe you know no, it's worship of Mary it's veneration, veneration of Mary and and so, obviously, want to. I think we we disagree with them, but want to represent yeah. them, you know, and care about. We have Catholics. I, I have family and friends that are Catholic that I care about. Mm. But just, I think it. I think it does go back to that, and um, really just to speak on the importance of Scripture. The difference of Scripture is that it is a foundation. It is a rock. Mm. It, it doesn't change. And you can tr- you can trace this in any sort of tradition. Tradition changes, mm. you know. Things, even with culture, you know, things change. The Mormons, all all kinds of, at least maybe not all Mormons, <laughs> but there was a time when you know, like black people couldn't be Mormons. Then they had a crazy revelation from God. Oh whoa, we were totally civil, wrong during the civil rights movement. Very <laughs> very coincidental timing for church membership numbers. Uh, they had a revelation. Exactly, and so. You can trace that in clearly false churches. Yeah. And so there's this, I just love it. I just love the idea of this so much. The idea of semper reformanda, Mm. always reforming. And it's this conviction that I think 
even a lot of Protestant churches that say, oh yeah, we, you know, we're coming out of the Reformation. We believe this. They don't really actually practice and believe is that no matter what it is, no matter what tradition we hold, thing we think that is good, if that does not match up with the light of Scripture, if Scripture is shown on this thing and it's shown and we learn that this thing that we're doing or that thing is is in, yeah, is in conflict with the with scripture, we're gonna take that out before we take out scripture. And and that's the that's gonna really be the opposite in I would argue in Catholic churches, is that here's this doctrine that the Pope has said, things like um so like a lot of the veneration of Mary is a something that a Pope said ex cathedra that he said with authority. Um, and so, which, you know, if you, if a Pope says something ex cathedra, then it's basically just fact basically. And that's not problematic at all. Not, no, but, but the, <laughs> the thing about that is, you know, then you have to, you're saying that that's fact and that's true. Something that a man, a fa- fallible man, sinful human said, <clears throat> then you have to read your Bible but, in a way, yeah. if you even read your Bible. But didn't didn't God give Peter the the keys to heaven? And isn't Pope the Pope just a descendant of Peter? And that's the that's the that's the that's the argument. That's the justification. Yeah. And and I think it does really get in. It does get into that. Mm-hmm. But Something. I think yeah. I think just to sidestep that the yeah yeah. For time's sake, for the. Sure. The thing is that then you're yeah you're reading your Bible in a way to make sense of something that you've already been told. You're coming in. I mean, this is the th- the big thing that Bethel and other places will say is super super bad is to, it's bad to come in, to come to Scripture with your preconceived notion of what's true, mm-hmm. and to push that onto the text. That's, um, fancy word is eisegesis. So there's exegesis, which is bringing out of the text, bringing those things that are true that the text actually says out of the text. But then there's, you know, really bad reading of scripture, which is eisegesis to say, this is what's true. I'm going to put this on the text. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find where it talks vaguely about praying for those, you know, in purgatory, you know, something that sort of sounds like that. I'm going to read these parables in light of my understanding and I'm going to twist these things, all of those types of things. It really, it really just leads people astray, completely leads people astray. And so, yeah, I think for us, if just from listening to you, if I can have one takeaway, it's that we, we really need to, to see, to see that these large, large institutions that are saying they're obedient to the Bible, et cetera, they can so easily fall away, mm. so easily fall away. And that we have to be resting in Christ resting on the found, on him as the foundation and the cornerstone. Mm. And so allowing scripture to be our guide of truth of all of all truth and knowledge. Um so important. And it's not I mean it's not the easiest thing. No, it's it's not. But it, but, but I think it <laughs> is really a really really important thing and something that we can learn just from history. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I mean this is why I'm so um, passionate about history is just because in so many ways, history points to Christ and the need for Christ. It's, it's undeniable 
the fallen nature of humanity when you when you look into history and you hear about all of this all of these awful things i mean even the present like what's happening in ukraine you touched on it's like that's a, a lack of of god mm-hmm. of god and rulers hearts and the fear of god and, and all of those things and yeah to kind of kind of touch on what you were saying a little bit about um you know how vital it is to rest everything on on Christ and on on the scripture and that should be the cornerstone and kind of the issue with with the Catholic Church is it isn't rested on that it's rested on tradition um when you said when they don't the con- it's contentious to say that we don't worship Mar- that we worship Mary I was thinking I saw a few years ago on like a Presbyterian meme page it was Dr. Evil from, I don't know if you recognize that guy, Dr. Evil. He's from a, a movie. I've actually never seen the movie, but he's hilarious. Um, Dr. Evil from Austin Powers. There's a meme of him saying um, with his fingers, we don't worship Mary, we venerate her. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, what's really going on? If you look at the classifications for the definition of what you're doing, well, you're, you're worshiping her. You don't just pray to anyone, you know. You can, there's so much mental gymnastics within Catholicism that you have to do. And on the cornerstone thing, when you mentioned that, I was thinking about um, my trip to the Toledo Cathedral. And what's common trend for cathedrals that I learned was that um, there were visions that people would have. So someone had a vision of of Queen Mary hmm. coming to them and on the specific stone of this old Visigothic church. Another example of different ideologies triumphing over each other. So yeah. the Catholics then built this cathedral on that very stone they believe where this guy had this vision of Mary and they they named the church in her honor to Mary. The cornerstone of this church is literally Mm. based around Mary. It's not based around Christ. It's based around Mary. And the thing that's so great about the Reformed, always reforming views is that we can recognize and we can have old institutions and still hold them accountable. You can't do that with tradition. Mm. When your basis is on man, on popes, on priests, on doctrine set forth by man, and not by scripture at the paramount, then it's going to be a f- one of the most fallible institutions possible. And when you centralize it to the point that the Catholic Church has, it's going to be even more so. Terrible. And for me, that's the one big takeaway, is, is how beautiful the Reformed tradition is in how democratic, and not in the sense where it's just in the mob of the majority, you know, the tyranny of the majority. It's it's that the the those in power, the the elites, they don't have the monopoly on interpretation. The person that has the monopoly on interpretation is whether or not their interpretation aligns with what the text plainly and clearly says, not based off of some authority that a pope or priest has. And that's really important because that's reflective of the church fathers and the early church in that scripture was paramount. Knowledge of scripture was paramount and all these things. And that's what's so great about Protestantism is that it's the great equalizer. The fact that we all have access to this document and that's so beautiful and we can hold people accountable. But in the medieval Roman Catholic church, you don't have that. And instead it's dominated by ancient Sorry, not ancient, because they, they can't date themselves in the ancient period. They can date themselves only to the early medieval period. But 
it's dated all of these different the robes they wear for gosh sake are all dated back to this extreme past and all of these traditions all of these views are based off of what some dead guy said a thousand years ago and that's not christianity christianity is is based around the scriptures and the canon and what what the rules that markate what your religion is and if that violates if you what you're presently teaching violates what the bible says what your canon is then it's not a part of the canon why don't we treat Christianity as strictly as we treat the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like, oh. honestly. Or, like, the Star <laughs> yeah. Wars canon. If someone, like, comes up with a fan fiction and it's, like, so insanely out of what what is in the canon, no one's going to be like, okay, this fits in here. But for some reason, because we have this institutionalized branch of, of quote, Christianity, it's acceptable for them to spout all this nonsense about Mary, about saints, about indulgences, about church structure, about all of these different things. So this isn't to necessarily bash Catholicism, but really it's just, it is so important to have your faith be centered around not man, not institutions, not tradition, but scripture and scripture alone and Christ and Christ alone. Yeah. And that was my takeaway, is the beauty of church. I literally was like, when I was flying home, I was just like smiling and thinking about going back to church because I couldn't go to church. And all I saw was images of Mary everywhere, images of relics of the church hierarchy and and having to do all of these things to get to heaven. And I was just reminded that my God isn't that God. My God is the God who saves who saves people based not on what they do. There's no amount of confessions I can go to attend. There's no amount of money I can donate, no amount of good things I can do. I don't have to I'm not worried about purgatory, you know. War war criminals, they're right, they don't go straight they don't go to purgatory. They they go to straight to hell. So do all those that are not repentant and part of God's elect, um, to reference the Ukrainian diplomats' words recently. Um, <laughs> that the, the, Just the beauty of, of how simple salvation is in Christ in the biblical sphere is just something I took away. And I guess one final thought, um, the Reformed faith often gets a lot of knack for not having pretty, pretty buildings. I had a conversation with someone. I was like, I was commenting on how, like, screwed up the history of all the cathedrals we're visiting was like it was built by slaves funded by expeditions to the new world by indulgences and people lying and people hiding knowledge of the bible and basically the government using it to assert their dominance over the over the church and over the individual and someone commented back they're like well reformed churches are boring and dull (laughs) and i'm just like they're boring and dull because what we rest all of our time and all of our beauty in is the preaching and the glorification of God. We don't have to have gold bars. We don't have to have magnificent basilicas. All we need is the word of God and Christ and Christ alone. And that is Christianity. And that that's what I took away. It's just how beautiful it is. Like I get emotional even thinking about that. that, that totally. That's the gospel. You don't need anything more. You can go preach in a dirt hut. You don't need all this fancy stuff. You don't need all of these ceremonies. You don't need all this stuff. All you need is Christ. And that's that's what I'm going to close off with. No, oh, man, that's so good. That's so true. Mm-hmm. I, I thank God that that his gospel is, is simple and that when we were far off that he came, he, he sought us out mm-hmm. and he changed our hearts and made us love him. Amen. Um. 
and that's all of grace and all of God. Yeah, I've I have nothing I have nothing more yeah to say than than about that and um just just hopeful that this conversation some food for thought yeah. and some um I mean really hoping that this this might change some some hearts and some minds on the in- institutions in general but really yeah. the Roman Catholic Church in the ways that um that we should be solely grounded in scripture scripture alone so yeah just thank you guys for um listening to this episode um if you guys have any any questions any thoughts any feedback please send it like we said at the beginning send us an email antifollypodcast at gmail.com um yeah we'll catch you guys in the next one that was better that was good Dude, that was really good. I like that. That was really good, bro. Uh, there's one other thing I, I wanted to say.